So this evening I'd like to talk about trust. Um, the holding things together when they're falling apart kind of thing. And in talking about trust this evening, um, I don't have very many notes with me, which is part of the trust. <laughs> because giving Dharma talks are, for all of us, there's, there's a whole evolution to it, to uh, starting with not feeling very trusting of what one knows or what uh, one's wisdom, and then evolving to a place where one needs to trust or does trust more in their own understanding. And so there's a real evolution in that trust, in allowing more and more the innate understanding to come forth. So I thought that talking about trust might be a, a good theme to do that with. Because talking about trust isn't really very easy. It's, it's fairly difficult because it's so abstract. It's something that I think we all have some sense of, but putting words around it is something very different. Making, making trust explicit, it somehow uh, shatters it. It's not it. Talking about trust really isn't trust. <laughs> trust is something that we uh, know within ourselves, or we don't know. It's, an, it's, it's not even an experience necessarily. So it's so difficult to, to talk about. But we'll see. Perhaps we'll do kind of a, an exploration of that together through the talk. I hope that it, it becomes clear in some way for us tonight. It's been interesting over the week to watch people go through their process and their journey of opening, you know, the opening and letting go, and really seeing the difference between people when you first came in last Saturday, when uh, those of you who did enter the retreat at that time, and then how things have unfolded for you over the week and to experience you now. Because I can really see a shift. I can really see a transformation that's taken place over the days. The way that you have allowed the process to take you in some way, to let it work on you. And so some you were able to more and more let go of some of the ways that you knew yourself to be, and in a way trusted into the process here to see what would happen when you did that. And my sense is that is a sense of people being much more open and sensitive and touch in that way. It's a real delight, it's a real joy for me as a teacher to witness that with you. So in this, we've been talking about how in a way there's the the identification with how we know ourselves to be starts to drop away. There is like a, a breaking down of that identification. And that process can be somewhat frightening. It can be somewhat uh, scary as we let go into that, as we surrender. This surrender we can experience as kind of a beginning of a dissolution or a disintegration, kind of a falling apart. And some people experience that more than others. But in that there's like there's an internal letting go, a surrender, where how we've known ourselves to be begins to fall apart. And that old identity of how we knew ourselves to be, it falls away. It may not necessarily uh, stay away, <laughs> but for this time here, something 
falls away and something else comes through. Something else begins to show itself. But as that old identity begins to fall away, the reason it can be so frightening is because we don't really have a sense of what's going to take its place. It can seem, we, we have a sense that how we've known ourselves to be before seemed very real. You know, I am a certain way in the world, I'm a certain way in my relationships, I know myself to be uh, in this way, and, and that seemed quite real. But as we let go of that, we don't really know what's going to replace that reality as we've known it. This kind of breaking down or falling away is easy for some. For some people, that they can feel a real sense of kind of relief in that. Like, ah, they can feel rather joyful, a kind of light and elation can come through. But for others, there can be a real struggle. Not wanting that, holding on to the way that I knew myself for dear life. It can seem very difficult, and it's not necessarily, not now I'm not necessarily talking about the seven days, but more the wider process of our spiritual journey. You know, how, how, how we relate to that process itself. There's a teacher in California by the name of A.H. Uh, Almas, who is uh, from the Sufi tradition. He's not in the Buddhist tradition. And he is showing up to be quite a pioneer in the field of consciousness right now. And he lives in the Bay Area in San Francisco, and there is quite a large group of people who are following his teachings now. It's called uh, Ridwan, or the diamond, Diamond Approach. And I wanted to read something from his, uh, from his, his latest book, one of his latest books uh, called The Facets of Unity on what he calls uh, basic trust. Because he says this is what's going to make the difference between whether this process of letting go and letting the old identity fall away, whether that process is easy or whether that process is difficult depends on one's level of trust or basic trust. This is, this is how Almas, or he's also known as Hamid, that's his Sufi name, this is how he defines this quality of basic trust. He says basic trust is an unspoken implicit trust that what is optimal will happen, the sense that whatever happens will ultimately be fine. It is the confidence that reality is ultimately good, that nature, the universe, and all that exists are of their very nature good and trustworthy. That what happens is the best that can happen. Basic trust is a non-conceptual confidence in the goodness of the universe, an unquestioned, implicit trust that there is something about the universe and human nature and life that is inherently and fundamentally good, loving, and wishing for the best. Now, at some level, that may be difficult to take in. You know, maybe in a way it depends on your level of trust. <laughs> because when we begin to use words like good or goodness or loving, it can easily bring up the opposite, bad, you know, hating or evil. And it seems that in our universe or in this world that we live in, both are true. There's the goodness, 
But when we look around, we can say, how can, how can you say that the universe, the universe is good? Because look at all the suffering. Look at all the pain, the real um, inhumanity that's going on in this world. So the thought can arise, and how can we say that it's a, a, a good and loving universe that wishes for the best? can be hard to take in. But I think that, in a way, we have to let go of this concept good in the way that we know it. It's not a goodness in relationship to bad, but we have to go down another level. We have to drop a little deeper to understand what, it, what is meant by goodness. He's saying, he's saying that basic trust is not a trust in something, in some person or some situation, and so it's not readily diminished by life circumstances. Instead, it gives you an, an implicit orientation towards all circumstances that allows you to relax and be with them. You feel in your bones that you are and will be okay, even if the events at the moment are disappointing or painful or even completely disastrous. That's really radical. <laughs> now that, that we, can, we can drop so deeply into our experience, and somehow have this trust that it's okay because somehow it's, it's working towards the very best, the very best that I can be, and the very best in some way that the universe can be. This can be a very difficult paradox unless we keep dropping into ourselves to try to understand how this can really be how this can really be. What is it that's being touched here? Usually when we think of trust, we think of more of an ordinary psychological trust, a trust that we do put in things, we put in people, we put in situations in our life. Like, um, I, I, I get uh, involved with a, with a person in a relationship and I put my trust in that person. I trust that that person will be loving and caring and faithful and loyal. This is, oh, we put our trust in the bank, <laughs> you know, that we'll get our, our returns on our money, or we put our trust in our employer, you know. This is usually the kind of trust that we are familiar with. But this trust is conditional. It's dependent on conditions, and, it, and we can easily be betrayed. It can easily be disrupted, because that's how things are in this world. Things aren't permanent or stable in any particular way, but they're changing all the time. Mind states, emotions, feelings, people, aging, uh, sickness. Uh, all these things always changing, affecting time, space, affecting conditions. So we have to perhaps look at a different kind of trust. I remember a number of years ago when I started to feel into the sense that I actually couldn't place my trust in things the way that I had in the past. And one time, I remember, I was starting to feel quite vulnerable, allowing myself to feel more vulnerable in myself, and to um, wanted to be more genuine with that vulnerability with people. And I started to think about which of my friends I could really trust my vulnerability with that I could really allow myself to, in a way, expose myself in, the, in my very um, uh, 
oh, I don't want to say weakest, but most vulnerable places. And when I thought about all of my friends, it was quite a shocking revelation because I realized that out of all my friends, there was only one that I felt could even get close to that level of trust, that I really couldn't trust any of them to give of myself in that way. It was really quite something to be left with that, that I couldn't move out in that way. I couldn't move out to the things that I generally put my faith in. And in that way, again, it left me back. It brought me right back to myself to find an inner strength, a place that I could rest within myself. So this ordinary trust, we can't, we can't put our trust in things, really, when we start to understand the conditioned nature of this world that we live in. This is the wisdom that starts to open up to us as we do our meditation practice, as we start to look more carefully at our minds, our bodies, and things of existence. We see that things are constantly changing. This is one of the the great insights that the Buddha uh, pointed to when he talks uh, talks about right view or understanding to see deeply that nothing is stable, that this universe, that the conditions of this world are in constant flux, that any time we go to reach out to something to hold it or to grab it, it disappears. There isn't anything that we can hold on to. There's nothing that we can rely on. There isn't anything that we really can can put our faith in as a way that it's going to last, it's going to be permanent, it's going to give us what we want over a period of time. This aspect of unreliability, of not being able to hold on to anything or or have satisfaction from it, is what's called dukkha, the suffering aspect. Complete unreliability of all things. The meditation practice helps us to start deepen into that understanding. And in seeing this, it helps us not to grab after things, things of this world that we think are going to give us that satisfaction, whether it's a mind state or an emotion, the way that our bodies are, the way that we look, our relationship with other people, our house, our possessions, Um, our work, anything, you name it. Ultimately, nothing is reliable. And so in seeing this, perhaps something shakes us. So we touch into something else. Right now we're calling that basic trust in something that we can't name. This is a parable, parable from the Buddha, from the time of the Buddha. It's called the parable of the mustard seed. Um, Gatami was her family name, but because she tired easily, she was called Kisagatami, or frail Gatami. She was reborn at Savati in a poverty-stricken house. When she grew up, she married going to the house of her husband's family to live. There, because she was the daughter of a poverty-stricken house, they treated her with contempt. After a time, she gave birth to a son. Then they accorded her respect. But when that boy of hers was old enough to play and run hither and about, he died. Sorrow sprang up within her. Thought she, since the birth of my son, I, who was once denied honor and respect in this very house, have received respect. These folk may even seek to cast my son away. Taking her son on her hip, she went about from one house door to another saying, give me medicine for my son. She wasn't able to believe that her son actually died. 
she thought that her son just went into some kind of coma, and so she went around looking for medicine. And wherever people encountered her, they said, where did you ever meet with medicine for the dead? So saying, they clapped their hands and laughed in derision. She had not the slightest idea what they meant. Now a certain wise man saw her and thought, this woman must have been driven out of her mind by sorrow for her son. But medicine for her, no one else is likely to know. The sage of the ten forces alone is likely to know, the Buddha. Said he, woman, as for the medicine for your own son, there is no one else who knows. The sage of the ten forces, the foremost individual in the world of men and the worlds of gods, resides in a neighboring monastery. Go to him and ask for the medicine. The man speaks the truth, thought she. Taking her son on her hip, she took her stand in the outer circle of the congregation around the seated Buddha and said, O exalted one, give me medicine for my son. The teacher, seeing that she was ripe for understanding, said, You did well, Gautami, in coming hither for medicine. Go enter the city, make the rounds of the entire city, beginning at the beginning, and in whatever house no one has ever died, from that house fetch tiny grains of mustard seed. And so she took her son on her hip, and she went from house to house to house, asking for a mustard seed if no one had died in that house. And each house she went into, went up to, they said, no, many, many have died here. You can't have a mustard seed from this house. And she went from house to house to house, and she couldn't find any house where someone hadn't died. Finally, she understood. In the entire city, it must be this way. The Buddha, full of compassion for the welfare of mankind, must have seen. Overcome with emotion, she went outside of the city, carried her son to the burning ground, and holding him in her arms, said, Dear little son, I thought that you alone had been overtaken by this thing which men call death. But you are not the only one death has overtaken. This is the law common to mankind. And so saying, she cast away her son in the burning ground. And then she uttered, No village law, no law of market town, no law of a single house is this. Of all the world and all the worlds of God, this is the only law that all things are impermanent. This is really the teaching that needs to go very deep because the deeper that it goes for us, it will interrupt that tendency to want to hold on to the things of this existence. And as that wisdom really ripens within us, it's like we can't reach out any longer. Our mind state arises, we really like it, we want ourselves to be like that, we know it's going to change. We know we can't say, that's who I am, because it's constantly changing. We can't find that security anywhere, inner or outer. So what's left? As we keep letting go, and we keep letting go, what's left? It seems that without the basic trust, without trust, it's too frightening to find out. It's too frightening to let go and find out what's left. It seems that when that trust is present, we can move more into our true being because the trust allows us to let go and enter into that unknown. But when the trust is absent, absent, we have a stronger tendency to hold on to the reference points of the ego identity because that's all we know. It feels too threatening to look any further, to go anywhere else. 
In the group today, one of my groups today, there was a person, one man in the group, who asked the question, he said, how, how can I hold it all together when everything's falling apart? You know, my business, my marriage, my, my health. You know, how can I hold it all together? What am, I, what am I supposed to do? You say that you know, wisdom accumulates over time. I don't have any sense that there's anything holding this up. Everything's just falling apart. How can I hold it together? And funnily enough, there was some synchronicity. He had to, he's a work retreatant, and he had to go out last night to look after some, uh, his son. And he said his son was watching a TV program about rich people in America who were falling apart. You know. And he said, interesting, you know, there's like this illusion that some people are able to hold it together. But is that true? You know? Who is really holding it together? <laughs> you know, I, I asked, I said, I reflected for a moment. I said, how many people do you know? Can you count on one hand who seem to have things pretty together? You know, whose, whose life isn't falling apart in some way? You know, whether it's the outer things of our life, you know, relationships or jobs or car, our car or our, um, computers. This is the latest thing. When their computers fall apart, that's the end of the world. You know, it cannot function. I mean, it's getting that way as a culture, that we can't function when our computers fall apart. You know, or, or when we see our own physical being start to fall apart. You know, we can't hold the body together anymore. Things start going wrong. A knee gives out, or, or the energy gives out, or we start having more arthritic pain here and there. You know? Or the mind. We can't think as clearly as we used to think. We can't hold on to some of the, the ideas or the concepts, the words, the memories. It just seems more and more out of control. I think there is an illusion in this world that we can hold it together. Because what would we actually be holding together? You know, everything is in constant change. Everything is in constant flux. There's nothing that holds together. There's nothing that stays together. You know, everything is in this motion. So it's really the nature of things. It's the nature of our minds. It's the nature of our body. It's the nature of things to be born, to have some vitality, and then to begin to age and die away. And whether that's something that uh, happens over a long period of time, or whether it's something that happens in a very short time, like a thought, or a raindrop, or, or a sound of a bird, everything that's born passes away. So is there really anything whatsoever to hold on to? It seems that's just the nature of this world. And I know when I first started really understanding this within myself, these teachings of, uh, of, of impermanence and dukkha, there was really some way that I started to feel a relief. I started, feel, uh, started to feel more ease in myself because I didn't have to keep putting in so much effort <laughs> to try to get things to hold together. You know? Of course, I do my best. You know? I, I do what I think is right and appropriate. But it doesn't seem like that's necessarily the answer. So there was more of a sense of, yes, good, I can let go. I don't have to hold up the world. I don't have to hold the world up on my shoulder. Let go. Because what is this world, anyhow? What is this world? I mean, what have you seen uh, this week? You know, it's a thought. <laughs> it's a feeling. It's a, it's a seeing something with the eyes. It's smelling something with the nose, tasting something with the mouth. 
an American Native American Indian crowfoot, a Blackfoot hunter and warrior, said in 1877, "What is this life? It is the flash of a firefly in night. It is the breath." Of a buffalo in the winter. What is this world? We tend to think of it as something that we can, you know, touch, touch something that we can actually touch and and own, possess, and say, "This is mine." But what is it? What is it that we're holding? What is it that we think we're holding on to? It isn't just an idea about something. This is the world, we say, this is the world of samsara. Samsara is the word in the Buddhist teachings, the the wheel of suffering. When we don't see this truth that there's nothing to hold on to, we just go round and round and round and round. Samsara is this truth that everything just flows out of our grip like sand. We can't rely on anything, can't hold to anything. This is an imperfect world that we live in. Because there are, it's the world of 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. That's the way it is. We can't get it just right. (laughs) Just right means just the way we want it. There's this very sweet um, Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. And uh, this guy, Watterson, who does the cartooning, he just really gets the faces really well of Calvin. And I'll post this on the notice board afterwards. Calvin's standing there and he's saying, if I was in charge, we'd never see grass between October and May. Now he wants snow. So he's sitting there kind of kind of precocious and then he yells up at the up up there to the heavens. He says, On three, ready? One, two, three, snow and then nothing happens. He's just sitting there, kind of standing there very despondent. I said snow, come on, snow and then he's kind of running around going, Snow, snow, snow He's getting really frustrated. And then he yells up, he says, Okay then, don't snow. See what I care. I like this weather. Let's have it forever. And he sees that doesn't work either. <laughs> Please, no. And then he starts kind of praying. Please, just a foot. Okay, eight inches. That's all. Come on, six inches. How about just six? You know, bargaining. You know. Then he kind of says, I'm waiting. <laughs> and nothing's happening, of course. So he's running around in circles going, ah, he's really frustrating. He's throwing, throwing a temper tantrum because it's not working. And the next frame, he's just totally exhausted, just standing there, his tongue, little tongues hanging out. And then he, his last attempt, he yells up at the gods and he says, do you want me to become an atheist? What are we going to... It's really like that, isn't it? You know? We'll do anything, anything we can. But what can we do? What can we do to hold it together? But it's this wisdom, it's this wisdom as it starts to go deep, as we really start to understand, this is what is the wisdom of letting go. Letting go isn't something that we necessarily have to do. It's like we don't, it's like if, you, if I say let go, it's like we can't just let go. Letting go is a byproduct of wisdom. Letting go is, a, is something that happens. It's a fruit of understanding because we no longer hold on. We no longer try to set up the circumstances and the conditions of our world the way we want it anymore because we know it's just exhausting and it's not going to get us where we want to go. 
the Buddha said, that which is beautiful remains so, but the wise one no longer strives after it. So it's not that the beauty dies away. It's not like we can't have the pleasure and the, and the beautiful anymore. It's just that we know better. It's not demanded in the ways that we did before. It's this wisdom that brings about the letting go. In a way, the mind just gives up. The mind that was, was, was grasping and clinging and demanding and expecting, it loses its power because it knows better. It's not going to get what it wants. So eventually, the mind just gives up. And sometimes this can, this giving up, when this giving up happens, it's really one of revelation. It's a great relief that all that energy and all that effort that goes into trying to line up the circumstances the way we want them. What a relief to know that we can just trust into the goodness of things. Know that things are going to be the best they can. I don't have to do it anymore. This is a kind of an awakening poem where this is expressed from um, Choki Nima Rinpoche, a Tibetan master who lives in Kathmandu. He said, when watching the magical display of this world, as it seems to be, spontaneously an overwhelming despair and pity well up in me. When watching its nature of innate simplicity, as it really is, I cannot help but feel wonder and break out in laughter. When watching the one who feels pity and the one who is laughing, both disappear and cannot be found. Now what to do? (laughs) Dropping away. Things just dropping away. What to do? (laughs) Pity despair, laughter, elation. What to do? This kind of surrender, surrender and letting go, doesn't mean that we give up. It doesn't mean that we stop trying to look after ourselves and others and take care of this world. This isn't the kind of surrender that I'm talking about. Because if we surrender before we really understand, we can fall into a kind of despair where we can feel helpless or a bit lost or confused about this life, about this world, about ourselves. And if we fall into despair as we begin to let go and surrender, it means that we're still identified with the pain. We're still identified with ourselves in the state of despair. And so there's more understanding, there's more wisdom that needs to happen so that we don't give up too soon, that we do help ourselves, we do work with with the condition of ourselves, of our mind, of our body, of our, of our life, that we keep going. It's really our responsibility. It's our responsibility to use the practices, to use the teachings, to, to use the tools and resources that we can to really help ourselves to wake up, to wake up into the truth of things. And as the heart starts to open, as this letting go happens, one of the beautiful and lovely things that happens, that shows up, is that the heart awakens into compassion. And the compassion arises because we see the uncontrollability. We see, in a way, how out of control everything is and the suffering that is all around within ourselves and outside of ourselves. 
And in the waking up to this, to opening to this, almost sometimes kind of a sense of helplessness, the heart can then just flow in compassion. Compassion towards ourselves, and we see when we see the uncontrollability of our own minds, and the, the uncontrollability of our bodies sometimes. You know, just to, to, to bring, to feel the compassion for our predicament or for somebody else's predicament that sometimes is so, so mystifying how uh, that level of suffering can come about. And in the letting go, there's that possibility for the heart to be touched in the face of that, of that pain, the face of that truth. I want to tell a story that somebody told in one of the groups and I hope that it's okay because I haven't asked permission. <laughs> but I'll ask, can I tell that story, Rick? That you told about the photo? Yeah. yeah? <laughs> but now people know who it is. That's okay. <laughs> but I needed to ask your permission. But Rick was saying today that a wonderful, lovely thing happened and a memory arose in this open, spacious place of mind where he remembered a photo of when he was small and he said he was playing some sport and he was smaller than the other guys. And in the memory of, of himself as that small child, he also remembered that he kind of scratched out the face on the photo. Didn't like that little boy there. You know, wanted to kind of push him out. And in that memory that arose, this incredible radiance of compassion came for himself and his own predicament, himself as a small person, and just his, the, the, the ability to allow the heart to open to himself right in the middle of that painful thought. And that compassion arose spontaneously. It wasn't like he had to practice compassion and, and pull up compassion for that little boy. In the spaciousness of mind, in the, in the open-hearted uh, attention, the compassion came. It, just, it, just, it just was a spark that arose in that moment and touched that memory and touched us <laughs> when you told it. So compassion, how lovely that that's what is there as we let go. As the heart opens, as the heart expresses truth, the warmth of compassion. I said the other night in my talk that the fixations in our mind are like ice-shaped in different forms. And Tukul Ugin Rinpoche, another Tibetan master, said, True compassion is, is like the summer's warmth which melts the ice. It's like summer's warmth that melts the ice. It melts the ice of our fixations in the mind. If we can turn our compassion towards ourselves in our predicament and others in their predicament. We can practice compassion. There are practices for compassion. We can remind ourselves about being kind, being, being tender, um, uh, remembering who we are, remembering uh, how vulnerable we are and uh, how, how tender we are. We can practice this. And the practice will reinforce this opening within us. But we'll find, too, that the more that we are connected with ourselves and true with ourselves and willing to uh, look at what's going on inside and out, the compassion starts to seep in and quite, quite spontaneously, quite on its own. We don't have to push things away. another one of my favorite cartoons 
Um, there's a, I, I don't know if I, I don't think I shared this yet. Did I, the Zen monk? There's a, there's a Zen monk uh, sitting on a kind of a platform of a, of a Japanese house. And he's in his black robe on his zafu, looking out at the beautiful Japanese, probably a, a feng shui garden. And behind him is a screen, a painted screen, where it's painted with a lovely picture of, of, of water and a palm tree and very calming, very mellow. So in front of him is the beautiful Japanese garden and behind him is a screen that's just, you know, very, very calming. And then behind the screen, which you can see in the cartoon, is a pile of junk. <laughs> it's just piled up to the top of the screen, but not quite over it, so you can't see it. It's all hidden behind the screen. And so in the cartoon, the monk is doing a very good job <laughs> of just p pushing everything out of sight so everything around him is completely beautiful and pleasurable. And in a way, that's what we do. <laughs> it's like we put these screens around our mind and we put all the junk <laughs> kind of behind it. But the problem is, is that we can't really fool ourselves. We try to fool ourselves, but we can't. <laughs> we know. Can I open to this? Huh? Can I meet this experience? And the more that I do, and the more that I have evidence that things are okay, the more I can deepen into the trust, the more that I can let go and trust that something, and it's not a thing, this is where I can't use the words, that something, it's the only thing I can say, is there to hold us. That in some way we are held by <laughs> that which we can't name. It's like the story where in uh, Joseph Goldstein's book, Insight Meditation, he talks about uh, a metaphor of the person jumping out of an airplane. But it's okay because the, uh, there's a parachute on the back. So having a few moments and taking that leap into the unknown and feeling the exhilaration of free falling, knowing that at any moment the security is there of my parachute, I can, I can pull it. But then the person goes to pull the parachute and doesn't open. So it's falling, 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 until one realizes there's no ground. Just that exhilaration. There's no ground to hit. And then he reminds us that then you realize there's no one to hit the ground. <laughs> so the trust, the basic trust, is what allows us to take that leap. Having some sense, having some wisdom of knowing that we'll be okay. That there is a loving universe that will hold us as we take the leap into the unknown, as we take the leap into the abyss. And when we do it, there's ecstasy that comes. There's ecstasy that comes from the wisdom of knowing the impermanence. The, the ecstasy of the wisdom of knowing the insubstantial nature of all phenomena, that there isn't anything solid in the universe, not even this. And in that ecstasy, there's no holding, there's no fear. I want to end with this poem that somebody wrote 
that I was, was passed down to me. And I hope it fits, fits because I really want to read it. <laughs> and it's kind of pointing to how we're going to live our life. You know, what, what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for before we jump out of that airplane? and find out that there's no ground and nobody to hit the ground. It's called, How Do You Live Your Dash? I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on her tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that, the first, came, that, that first came her date of birth and spoke the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For that dash represents all the time that she spent alive on earth. And now only those who loved her know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. So think about this long and hard. Are there things you'd like to change? For you never know how much time is left that can still be rearranged. If we could just slow down enough to consider what's true and real, and always try to understand the way other people feel, and be less quick to anger and show appreciation more and love the people in our lives, like we've never loved before. If we treat each other with respect and more often wear a smile, remembering that this special dash might only last a little while. So when your eulogies being read with your life's actions to rehash, would you be proud of the things they say about how you spent your dash? Let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.